Father, thank you for your goodness and your, uh, your consistency in showing your love to us and caring for us in every way. We thank you for giving us this opportunity to come and to be um, together, able to study, able to learn, and uh, in a few minutes, able to worship. We thank you that we can come in week in and week out, and your attitude to us has not changed. Sometimes, uh, or perhaps very often, our attitude changes uh, as our circumstances change or as our mood shifts, but the good news is your love for us is always and constant, um, and as the Scripture puts it, it's a steadfast love. We thank you, Father, for that. Help us to see it more clearly today, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're on to your questions. So I'm going to open it up. Marlon wants to ask a question about philosophy, but she's kind of pre-asking. Did the, uh, did the philosophers of classical Greece, you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, did they have access to the Hebrew scriptures? It would seem not. It would seem not. I mean, I, you know, obviously somebody might have walked through with a copy of it, but it, it doesn't seem to be reflected in any of their work. Uh, so Marlon is asking that um, uh, about the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a translation done, um, the word just means the 70, because something like 70 Greek scholars took the Hebrew Bible. This is about 300 years B.C., before Christ. Um, At that point, you know, Hellenization, you're familiar with the term, Alexander the Great had gone out, and in his conquest, he Hellenized the world. People were learning Greek culture and were adopting the Greek language. And so a lot of the, the folks who were Jews actually learned Greek rather than Hebrew or Aramaic. And that continues on to Jesus' day. In fact, in Jesus' day, Latin was not, even though the Roman Empire was now in charge, Latin was not the lingua franca, the language of the people. Rather, it was still Greek, which is why the New Testament is written in Greek. But anyway, the Old Testament gets translated into Greek and becomes the translation that most of the early church fathers use. Um, so, So the question you have is whether a letter by Aristius, I have no idea. Okay, so Marla's asking this letter by Aristius that describes how the Septuagint was put together. You're asking whether it's genuine. I do not know that's who it was that wrote it, but everything I've ever learned about the Septuagint matches what you just said, that you had the 70 or 72 and, you know, separate guys that came in and so on. So I would imagine it's probably, if not genuine, at least uh, accurate, and there's a difference between those two. Um, so, yeah, I mean, our, our understanding of the Septuagint is not controversial. Um, it's its creation and so on. Um, no, the Septuagint is a translation of the Old Testament. It would be no different than the ESV, right? No, you don't, no, the NIV or the New American Standard. It was just the language people were speaking. And it was just like me handing you a Hebrew t- a Bible and you look at it and say, I can't read this. If you would have handed it to, to you know, uh, 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 somebody who predated Paul... In, in Tarsus, right, um, he wouldn't have been able to read it. Well, you know, a, a trained Pharisee, yes, but the average person, you would have handed that to them in Tarsus, and they would have looked at that and said, I can't read it, that's Hebrew. So they translated it into Greek. So I wouldn't say that our Bible comes from it. Now, there is an interesting thing about the Septuagint, and one reason why it's worth getting a copy of it, a translation of it. Of course, now you have a translation of a translation, uh, but there's some good ones out there. Um, believe it or not, probably the best one that, you know, that most people can get that's accessible and easy to get is the Eastern Orthodox Church has an Orthodox Study Bible. That's what they call it, the Orthodox Study Bible. And you can buy that. And um, 
and, and it has a, a, a pretty good translation of the Old Testament. So anyway, what's interesting is sometimes you'll look at a quote in the New Testament of the Old Testament, right? One of the gospel writers is quoting, and then you look at it in the Old Testament, and it's not 100% the same words. You would think, well, they were quoting it to be the same word. It's like you looking up the ESV and somebody looking up the NIV, and there's a, you know, just same thoughts there, but it just uses different words. What they were doing is they were looking it up in the Septuagint, and then they translate, or don't translate, they just, it's already in Greek, so they just, tra- they just write it in Greek. So it's like you, you've, you've done this all the time. It sounds very mysterious at first, oh, can we trust our Bible? You do this all the time. You um, have your Bible open, and then you grab some study guide or something for a class that you're going to teach or you're uh, doing a devotional, and in the front it says all scripture quotations from the New International Version, copyright 1984, 2011, and you do that, and you see those, and then you look in your ESV Bible, and they're not the same, and you don't, your mind doesn't blow. You just sit there and say, they're two different translations. Sometimes you sit there and say, huh, I wonder why they picked that word. Then you come and you ask your pastor, and he tells you or whatever, but, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that's exactly what's going on here. They're translating, or rather they're taking their, their quotations from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's what they had. Um, most of those guys probably did not read Hebrew. Some probably did, but imagine Matthew did, Jesus, you know, that kind of thing, Paul. Um, but Luke may very well not have. So just an idea. So does that help to answer that question? Okay. Phil, do you want to follow up? So Phil is asking, um, he was listening to two Roman Catholic theologians talking about the, uh, um, the classical philosophers, Plato, Socrates. Uh, actually, in that order, Socrates comes first. Plato is a student of Socrates. Aristotle is a student of Plato. And they were saying that it uh, um, influenced the early church. I think it would be much more accurate to say it influenced the medieval church. So let me, let me uh, give you a very brief timeline so by the time that the early church, you know, takes off, um, Greek is the language, and it is the, the learning and, and so on is primarily Greek. Um, we see Paul in Acts chapter 17 going to Athens. Athens is the center of culture, you know, and educated learning, the elites and all that. So that's your, that's your, your, you know, your Boston area with Harvard and, you know, everything else is right there. That's your Ivy League and all that. Uh, that shifts, and it shifts to Rome later, but it only, and much later, only because the Roman Catholic Church makes that the center and so on and so on. So it's not the case then. It's still Athens. Uh, so there's no doubt that those things are around. But its influence in the Scripture is fairly minimal when you look at the New Testament. Now, you get to John. John writes, in the beginning was the, what's the word in Greek? Logos, Okay. And what you see John doing is he's interacting. Paul does this to a certain extent, too. Uh, He'll take a Greek concept and so on. But you see John doing it very clearly there. We translate that as word and that sort of thing. The the term logos was a Greek term, and I'm going to go somewhere with this, but it was a Greek term that that, um, signified the principle that makes sense, the thing that brings everything together, the rational thing. Because, you know, Greeks can look and say... All this is not just, you know, chaotic stuff that just all happened to fall. There, there's order. There, there, there's something behind all this that's putting everything together. There's some, some rational principle. It might be impersonal. It might be personal. And 
every culture since has done the same thing. It might be the force. It might be, you know, the, the millions of, of, you know, Hindu gods. It might be the Olympians, you know, even as they fight with one another. But the, the point was that, and the Olympians are also part of Greek culture, but the, the, uh, the philosophers were not stupid, and they didn't really believe any of that stuff. So they had this concept, the Logos. John takes it and appropriates it and says that that rational principle, that organizing principle, that thing that gives order and gives meaning and significance to life is not a thing, it's a person. So you do see that influence. But it's not like John accommodated the gospel. Rather, he takes from culture, because there's always in every culture some element of truth. And John steps onto it as a point of contact, just like you do when you're witnessing to an unbeliever. You find a point of contact, right? That person is hurting, and they're sitting there, and they're saying, this doesn't make any sense. Why is this happening to me? You can relate to that person's hurt. You can relate to the brokenness of the world. You use that as a point of contact, and then you begin to say, yeah, your views that God hates you or, that, or there's no God out there, that's the wrong way of understanding these circumstances. Here's the right way. So you see that in the New Testament. But it's not until we start getting into the late, early, late antiquity, beginning of what's known as the Middle Ages, uh, like with Augustine, that you begin to see Plato having a real effect. And it was called Neoplatonism. Now, you've ever heard the term neo-orthodoxy, the new orthodoxy? That's already from 1900, so it's not so new anymore. By the way, you don't want to follow that. It's messed up. But um, there was an attempt to maintain uh, the validity of Christianity in the face of liberal modernism, and it didn't work because it was a compromise. Compromises never work. But Neoplatonism was a revival. They were rediscovering Plato because about the time of uh, of Augustine, now, you know, you're about 700 years after Plato. So they are rediscovering him, and people started incorporating that into all sorts of things, and there were some Christians. And Augustine, who had been in that whole world, when he becomes a believer, hangs on to that, some of that stuff. It's very interesting that there's basically two Augustines. There's early Augustine, and then he matures, and there's later Augustine. The Roman Catholics claim early Augustine, we claim later Augustine, as he went through and he got a hold of things. So I wouldn't say it really affected the early church. It did affect the medieval church, so much so that by the time you're now hitting uh, Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, so we're talking about 1100, 1200, um, he actually looks at Aristotle's way of ordering the world, which I won't get into all the details here, but the way Aristotle orders the world, and he uses that to order his theology. And it's been argued that much of medieval theology is essentially Aristotelian. Now, can we learn some things from Aristotle? Yeah, absolutely. Like every other, you know, person who, who studies the world, if they get some truth, you can make use of that truth, right? Somebody tells you two plus two equals four and it's not found in Scripture, you can learn from that. There's limitations even to that statement because what they mean by two plus two equals four does not mean what you mean when you say two plus two equals four. So it's never us imbibing fully what they say. But you can learn from that. So you can learn from Aristotle. What's funny is in the last 20 years, there's been a revival of Aristotelianism. And a lot of reform guys, always the ones, it's an overreaction. Oh, we see liberalism rising, so we're going to push back on it. Um, they go too far in the other direction. And there's a bunch of guys now kind of rediscovering Aristotle, even in our circles. Um, I think it's dangerous. So I'll simply say this. So I want to end by saying one thing about all Greek philosophy. And, and by the way, there's other philosophers other than Greeks. 
There's Chinese philosophy, which is absolutely uh, fascinating and just as uh, ancient. Uh, the Tao Te Ching is the book uh, written by Lao Tzu that talks about Taoism. Uh, Tao is actually, we spell it with a T, T-A-O, but it's actually a soft D, Taoism. Uh, Confucianism is literally just as old, and they're not the same thing, even though at times there have been a successful melding of those two uh, philosophies together. They're not religions in the sense of worshiping gods. Uh, in Taoism, there's the search for the logos. There's the search for the way. The way is the thing that brings everything together because they can see it, right? Confucianism is more about relationships and about recognizing that there's relationships and if you enter into those relationships and honor certain people and so on, society works. All these, philo- and there's more. You we can talk about Iranian uh, or Persian philosophy. Uh, Hinduism is fascinating because at times it's a religion and other times it tends towards more philosophy and so on. With its thinking about castes, you think, oh, caste, that's terrible. It's telling everybody you... The caste system at first is, com- comes out of a... It has nothing to do with their view of gods. It comes out of a practical uh, philosophical bend that looks at the world and says, you're better at this than that person is. We should put you in that and we should not let this person take that job from you because you're good at it. So, you know, so it starts with a kind of, um, like all these philosophies, trying to make sense of the world, which is what you were saying, Marla. I think philosophy in all kinds should be studied because what it shows you is how far man can go in making sense of the world without revelation, without special revelation. And what it always does is it always fails. And I don't mean like fails like just a little bit off. I mean, it, in the end, it just never succeeds. It never succeeds. The person who holds it, Plato holds his view, he's holding it, but, no, but everybody else around him, there's always a few disciples, but everybody else is like, yeah, that doesn't answer my question. And so they either start one or they glom onto somebody else. And you can follow that through, you know, all the way to Jean-Paul Sartre. Because, you know, and if any of you are a little older, you know that in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, Oh, Jean-Paul Sartre and existentialism. That was the thing. And if you were in college, if you were very sophisticated, you would talk about Jean-Paul Sartre. And you'd go, you know, to a dinner party and you would sit there and say, yes, I have, you know, a doctorate in existential philosophy. And then immediately you'd be all in all the Manhattan uh, clubs and, you know, whatever else. Either that or you were gay. It was had to be one or the other. But LGBTQ and all that stuff, th- those are philosophies. Well, how can LGBTQ? That's just sin. Yes, the behavior is sinful, but the whole philosophy behind it is trying to sort out one of the most basic human questions. What is my identity? Who am I? So you see, they're all trying to answer that, and they all fail miserably. It's worth studying because it enables you to see that people, like, okay, years ago, Francis Schaeffer had some of his students uh, in Libri, and they were looking at works of art. Works of art are simply an expression of our attempt to make sense of the world. And he was pointing out how their art showed whatever their views were. And some of the students were laughing at them for failing to get it. And he got upset and he said, don't you dare laugh at these folks. This is their very best attempt to deal with the big questions. They're wrong. The answer is in Christ. I don't know if he said this next part, but I'm just adding. If we get it, we get it because God has been gracious to us. But we dare not laugh at LGBTQIA studies and, you know, Baylor or whatever and UNT or, or um, feminist studies and all, all those more recent things. They're all, they're all philosophies. They're all attempts to deal with the big questions of life. 
So study Plato, study Socrates, study Aristotle, study the, the Chinese philosophers and the Persian philosophers and study, um, you know, French as existentialism and all that. And what you will see is they're all wrestling with these big questions. And that little old lady sitting in the backwoods in West Virginia who's missing half her teeth and never graduated beyond middle school, but she had her Bible and she studied it and she learned it. She could tell you the Hebrew kings, the Jewish kings, back, for, you know, back and forward. She has the answers to those questions, but it's only because God has revealed it. And there's no way to know those answers to those questions because our sin blocks us. Blocks us from seeing it and blocks us from our relationship with the God who answers those. Adam, in his pre-fall state, would not have known that had God not spoken to him. So that shows you our desperate need of special revelation. And what it does is, rather than distancing you from the Bible, it'll drive you back to the Bible for answers. Does that make sense? Okay, does that help, Phil? Okay, I hope that's helpful. Let's see our time. Our time's just about up. Do I have a, maybe a quick question? Chapter 11, 1 Corinthians. Mm-hmm. So there, uh, to give you the short answer without a whole lot of um, backing it up with a whole lot of references. Chapter 11 comes in the midst of a discussion about worship. And um, uh, if you look at it, it's all making sense. So he's talking about the Lord's Supper. He's talking about abuses of everything in that, in that section of 1 uh, Corinthians as he's addressing <coughs> excuse me, issues issues that have cropped up in the Corinthian church. And so he addresses them and so on. So the thing that had come, come up, comes up. The next chapter deals with spiritual gifts, which you might think, oh, he's completely off the topic now. No, he's talking about the use of spiritual gifts primarily in worship is where he's going. He caps it in, in chapter 14 uh, as he talks about who can prophesy, preach, and so on, and, and, and this and, 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 and so on. It's not until he gets to 15 that he finishes that whole section on dealing with primarily issues of worship. So when we understand that, the second half of 1 Corinthians 11, which talks about head coverings, has to be seen in that context. And what he's saying is um, there's, there's an order to things. And he talks about Jesus submits to God. God is the head. The Father is the head of the, of, of the Son, just as the man is the head of his wife. He's, he's talking about a cosmic order of things that have been um, uh, put in place by God. And so his reference to the angels is he's trying to get it out of just saying it's just convention. There is a cosmic order of things. Even the angels watch and they see. Uh, so he's putting it in this sort of, well, like I said, cosmic context. That's the primary reason. Everything else that he then says about head coverings, he does begin from a cultural stance which if, without, again, backing this up, because this will be the last question, we're pretty much out of time. If you look at the way that was happening in Corinth, it was actually very typical of the time and in the setting. And what he's basically doing is a lot of people think that it's actually saying that you must wear head coverings. He actually ends by saying that the covering for the women is their hair, their natural hair. God gave them that hair. And he even says, you know, nature says. So see, that, that, re- that reference to nature knows that men and women have to have different looks even with their hair is part of his arguing that there's this supernatural larger thing that it's not just cultural convention if that helps but that's the reference to to the angels or for the angels is that he's trying to say all this that we do in worship is is part of a much bigger cosmic thing we don't just get to dictate whatever we want okay so i think we're going to stop there folks Uh, That's a question that could have taken up the entire time if we wanted to unpack it all.
Uh, just mind you, if you've got your hair in place, you're good. <laughs> Women, don't shave your heads, um, is what it's trying to say. So, what was the name? Shanata Connor? You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't, don't do that. Okay, let's go ahead and pray and we'll get ready for worship. Father, we thank you that you have given us minds with which we can think your thoughts, eyes and ears with which we can see and uh, study the world around us and hear you speak. You've given us the ability to communicate with the divine, to be in connect in connection with you, to have a relationship with you, to um, understand the world um, through your explanation and your um, uh, lens of seeing things. Uh, our own sin has broken that connection. Our own hard-heartedness has said we will figure things out on our own, and we have now seen centuries upon centuries of man trying and scrabbling to make sense of things and ultimately failing. Thank you, Father, that you have spoken to us and not left us uh, wallowing around in the mire, feeling around like blind men in the dark, but that instead you have spoken clearly and shown us in your word the truth of this world, the truth of who we are, the truth of who you are, and especially the truth of what you are doing in history to redeem this world and to redeem a people for yourself so that all this can be turned around and once again restore us to the time when which we will again be in perfect harmony in our relationship with you and with the world around us and be able to understand it. Until then, Father, continue to open our eyes through your Holy Spirit, even as we go into worship. Uh, may you give us those eyes and ears to see beyond what is visible and auditory. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.